holidays are a time when most office work slows down, rightfully so. But it's also an opportunity to catch up on some educational content, um, some research, some ideas, especially when you have that extra bandwidth. But where should you be focusing that extra bandwidth? And more importantly, how can you avoid some of the increasing amount of educational scams that are out there? Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I'm your host, Blythe Brimley. Even on the show, we cover B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And on today's episode, we are talking about how we should treat SEO in 2022. We're talking about what freight brokers should focus on and how to avoid those potential scams with Ben Kowalski. He's of Freight360 fame. And we're also going to be featuring some supply chain episodes from Odd Lots to that maybe you would like to listen to over the holiday break. But our first topic, Christmas came a little early for this Jaguars fan because Urban Meyer and the toxic leadership of that coach is out. Uh, Sorry, I had to sneak that first one in. But our first real topic for today is how we should treat SEO in 2022. Because SEO and freight is sort of thought of as a forward-thinking marketing strategy. And it feels a little weird to be saying that because SEO as a concept has been around since the 90s. It took on mass adoption around the two hun- around the 2000s. But SEO, before I lose a lot of you who may be, maybe not fully aware of what this sort of tactic and strategy is, SEO stands for search engine optimization. And it's essentially what you're doing is you are programming your site from a content perspective and from a tech perspective on hopefully targeting content that your users are or prospective users are targeting on those search engines. So if you put yourself in the mind of your customer, what problems are they experiencing? What are they going to Google to type in to Google to search for a solution to that problem? And does that content fit into what your company, your service, your product, what type of product or service does that solve for that potential prospect that's coming to your site? But it doesn't just stop there. There's a, there's a lot of tech angles that can happen with this with SEO as much as it is involved on the content side. So people typically think of SEO when it comes to blog content, uh, YouTube content, even images to an extent. But it's just as technical as it is on the content side of things. Um, So when it comes to both of those sides of the coin of SEO, it can sound a little complicated, which is why my stance on SEO is that it should not be your only strategy. And the reason I bring this up is because I, you know, it's proposal season. You're seeing a lot of insight. You're seeing a lot of back and forth uh, between prospective clients, current clients on what's working and what's not working, what they've tried in the past and what they're currently or what they want to try in the future. So the topic of SEO is brought up. And I'm privy to some other agencies that are submitting these types of bids and these types of proposals. And what typically happens is these SEO or these marketing agencies, maybe they don't specialize in SEO because what they're sending over is they're sending over keyword phrases and they're sending over the estimated volume for that search engine phrase. So the estimated volume is the amount of times that that particular phrase is being searched online. Now, little do these guys know, especially if the agency doesn't specialize in SEO, that there are some common misconceptions when it comes to these phrases versus their keyword volume. And there was a recent thread that caught my eye from 
uh, the CMO over at Ahrefs, which is an SEO. It, it's sort of a tool that helps your SEO strategy, all encompassing. So your backlinks, uh, the keywords you're trying to rank for, the volume, the research portion. So all of these different factors, all factor into SEO. But he had a thread of the common misconceptions. And I'm going to run through them really quick. Uh, search volume numbers are annual averages. So say you're looking for uh, Christmas shipping suppliers in the month of November, you might see an estimated monthly volume of 30,000 searches a month. But those averages are based on a month or based on annual averages. So they're not based on maybe all of those searches being conducted in the month of November. There, that is an annual average, not a monthly average. Uh, not all searches, next one on the list is not all searches result in clicks. Have you ever searched for something on Google and then you found the answer right on Google? You didn't even have to click through the article. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Also, advertisers might steal your clicks. If there's a particular highly competitive keyword, you can just skip all of the other organic results and you can just pay for that first or first to the, I think first to five results on Google are usually paid. So that's another one to keep in mind. And then also search volume numbers aren't particularly accurate. And the reason that they aren't particularly accurate is because Google collects all of that information and they only want to share it with themselves because they're trying to sell advertising against it. So when they're trying to sell advertising keywords, they don't necessarily share that data. They absolutely don't share that data with any other tools like a HREF, like a, like a SEMrush. So some of these other tools that are out there that can tell you, oh, this is the volume of searches, you really don't know because Google keeps that information very close to the chest. And then the last one that he said is that higher keyword search volume does not equal more traffic. It, the reality is, is that if you're trying to rank for a specific keyword, a lot of companies will take that approach that they'll see that keyword. And then what they'll do is they'll write one blog article that's 500 words in length. And then they wonder six months from now, why am I not ranking for this keyword phrase yet? Well, Google doesn't really know that you're covering that in depth. And so that's why you're not ranking for that keyword. Um, so there's it's a bunch of different sort of philosophies and strategies and tactics around modern day SEO. But how should Freight think about this in 2022 and beyond? And that's what I'm going to cover now. Because from my perspective, the overall tips to approach SEO in Freight, it shouldn't be your only strategy, but it can be a limited strategy that you implement now with a minimal investment that can have long-term value. So knowing the difference between High intent searches and low intent searches is probably the number one tip that I can give you. Let's throw this image up that is the S the SEMrush tool that helps to identify high intent searches versus low intent searches. So using this as an example, I searched for trucking carriers in SEMrush. And you'll notice on this list, RNL carriers are ranking for that keyword but it probably has a navigational intent. So someone looking for directions to that facility. But bicycle carriers for trucks probably has a transactional intent. So ideally, you want to attack the search engine phrases that have high intent, like the transactional example. Now, another approach that I can give you is being informational. So maybe you have a TMS that you are offering up or a TMS partnership. Um, even a freight broker course to that example. Those are all high intent searches. And But what you can do is you can be an informational approach to that first 
and then sell your course in addition to it. And what I mean by that is that by someone searching for something on Google, particularly in the in the B2B space, when they arrive on your website, if they arrive on your website, you don't know that they are going to convert. But what you can provide is you can provide valuable information to where it's so valuable that that person has no choice but to follow you on social media. And so when they follow your company, maybe they follow you as a person, then that gives you an opportunity to continue showing your informational value to that prospect so that they eventually become a transactional customer with you. So that's a good example of keeping in mind as far as what you want to target between high intent and low intent searches. Now, how do we get accurate keyword information? And this is probably one of my favorite parts of the SEO research process because nobody really knows. It's the million dollar question that most agencies wish that they can answer. But if they do answer it with certainty, they're probably lying to you or they're probably inexperienced. Because like I said earlier, Google is the only one that has all of this accurate information and they're not sharing it with any marketing agency. They're not sharing it with any SEO tool out there. You have to do this by doing research. And since there isn't a real way to know, you have to do some of that research manually. Now, one trick that I use is Google's autofill on private mode. So you open up your browser on private mode because you don't want your current history affecting what the results are going to be. You want it to be a clean slate. So you start out on private mode. And I use the same example as I used earlier, trucking carriers. And if you're looking at the screen, you'll notice that there are different phrases that auto-populate in Google because those results have been searched so much that Google thinks that that is what you're trying to search for. So if you notice on the autofill, you can check this out and then you can see if any of those phrases fit your business. So knowing that exact phrases, you can ask yourself, do any of these fit my business? And then also the next one on the list is because you're not just going to look at the autofill, you're going to actually search for that phrase and then see what the rest of the results are because there's another section on the Google results page, the first page that says people also asked. And that's a section for more ideas. This usually appears in the middle of the search page, sometimes towards the top. So don't forget to check that section. And then there's also another section at the bottom of the page one results, and it's called related searches. So these are more content ideas and other relevant searches that Google, if you didn't find the information you were looking for, this is what they think you are trying to search for. So these are where you can get your content ideas from on what to publish in the future. Now, one of my more favorite tricks to use is called the ABC method. And what you do is you do use the same keyword phrase that I just said, trucking carriers. But then what you want to do is you want to put a space and then start with the letter A. And you can see if you're watching on the screen, you can see all of the next, you're going to do the same exact thing that I just said. You're going to check this part. You're going to check people also ask. You're going to check the bottom of the search results page, but you're going to look at what Google is auto-filling, write those down, any of those that are attributable to your business. And you're going to do it for A, you're going to do it for B, you're going to do it for C, D, E, F. You're going to go through the entire alphabet in order to see all of the different results that Google is auto-filling. Now, this gives you insight as to if that phrase is being searched enough, Google is going to list it on the autofill or they're going to list it on the people also asked 
section, because those are the phrases that they think you're trying to go for that you haven't found yet. And so that's where your company can look at those different phrases and then be able to pick and choose which questions that are being asked, which phrases are being used. And then that way you can take whatever is applicable to your business, and then you can make a giant spreadsheet and then you can take that content because the next step is taking those taking those phrases and those keywords and then making a list of how you want to target them. So the way that you want to think about targeting them is focus on where it makes sense, obviously, the high intent versus the low intent. And then you want to have a blog article that's at least 1,500 words. This tells Google that you're doing a comprehensive guide that you're not just writing 300 to 500 words and it's going to be super short and to the point, which on social media, you want to be short and to the point, but Google likes it when you are in-depth and comprehensive with that particular phrase. So a blog article that's at least 1,500 words. You also, if that's not really your style and you don't really want to hire a writer to write 1,500 words, what you can do instead is answer that same question on, on a YouTube video. YouTube is the second largest search engine on the planet. And so coming at it from that perspective, you can create a video that covers that same exact topic, that video is going to rank higher in the search engine results than the rest of written content because Google owns YouTube. So they want to be able to showcase their different product offerings and their different showcases for those different phrases. So thinking about it from a YouTube perspective, if you make a one, one take video, you hit record on your phone, you cover the topic in depth, then you hit end, you upload it directly to YouTube, then you can take that video and you can send it to a transcription service. You can send it to a blogger to just type out exactly what you said in your video. And that's your blog article. So it creates less work on your part in order to figure out some of the stuff that you can outsource. But some of this other, other parts of SEO, you need to be able to choose where you're going to battle. And sometimes, in my opinion, it's both. You need to be on YouTube and blog articles. But then you can also take the approach of this is what I've personally done is I do my keyword research, I write the blog articles, I post them to the site. And then after about six or eight months, I see which ones are performing well. If those, which ones are performing well, probably choose a half a dozen of them and then make a YouTube video from them. So then that way I can hit from both angles, the people that learn visually and the people that learn by the written word. So both of those things are, are highly, highly valuable as far as taking those phrases into the next step. Now, the final tip that I will give you is Google Search Console. It is the free, it, it, it's a free tool. It's one of the best SEO tools that you can add as far as your website is concerned. You integrate it by connecting Google Search Console onto your DNS settings. If you don't know what any of that phrase means, just send it to your developer and they should be able to take care of it for you. But your site absolutely should be verified in Google Search Console. I cannot stress that enough because when you check Google Search Console, it will tell you what is resonating with users, how your site is showing up in search. Are you getting high impressions, but a low click-through rate is one article that could be just tweaked a little bit in order to take advantage of a higher click-through rate because you're getting 40,000 impressions on an article, but nobody's clicking through. So knowing that kind of insight can help you take advantage of the low-hanging keyword research or the low-hanging keyword fruit is probably a better way to put it to see how Google is thinks your site is covering a particular topic. And then also if users are finding it useful enough 
to see your search engine result and then click on it because that is part of the journey is that you want to do this research, you want to solve problems for your audience, and you want to create a resource on your website. So then that way people can either follow you or they can become a partner with you. So all of that, keeping that in mind, I could expand so much more on this SEO topic, but I didn't want to overwhelm. And obviously, this is live TV, so I can't dive into uh, any more than what I've just sort of laid out. But that should give you a good perspective of how you can do your keyword research and start dipping your toes in the waters of SEO while it's still a somewhat valuable tactic, especially if you don't want to be on camera, even though I would still highly suggest that you should find somebody in the office that can speak intelligently about some of the topics that you would want to be ranking for and do it in a video format, have it transcribed, add it to your website and organic search. Once you start ranking for some keywords, it has such a longer shelf life than say comparatively to a Twitter post that has a shelf life of like two minutes. Whereas an organic search engine result could have a lifespan of years. So it's a really good gamble. I think it should be part of an overall marketing strategy, but I do not think it should be your core strategy. But using those tips should help you sort of, you know, find the pathway of how you want to approach SEO in 2022 and beyond. Now for our next guest, which I'm really excited about, it's Ben Kowalski. He is the host and co-founder of Freight360, and he's helping freight brokers get their stuff together when it comes to sales. So welcome in Ben to the show. Hey, pleasure to be here. Ah, I see we have matching mics and lighting systems. So you blend right into the the, the Cyberly color scheme and the color palette. So I like that. <laughs> now, hey, it was I, by design. Been, I, <laughs> awesome. Well, now, now, Ben, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. But what really sort of was the straw that broke the camel's back for me was just a couple of weeks ago, I, talk, I talked with a prospect and she mentioned that she got scammed by taking a freight broker course, and then she got ghosted and she never heard from the guy again. And so she ended up, you know, someone who probably didn't have a couple thousand dollars to waste, she ended up wasting a couple thousand dollars. And it started this whole sort of conversation about where folks can find freight broker courses that aren't a scam and that are actually legitimate. Now, you guys have actually created a course on over on Freight 360 on this same topic. So tell me a little bit about what the before we get into the course, your course itself, but tell me a little bit about what the current landscape is for freight broker courses. Are most of them a scam or are there are a lot of legitimate ones out there? It's just a little tougher to find. I would say the overwhelming majority are and I don't I would I don't want to use the word scam because I don't want to speak to that many general things that I haven't been able to dig into. But I would say there's probably two or three that we've come across that are reputable that we feel get you the information you need to actually take some of the next steps. I think one of the other big things are setting the right expectations. I think a lot of people, and for a lot of good reason, right? People are jumping in and want to get into the industry. It's prevalent. It's in the news. People are aware of it during the you know holiday season. It, there's no shortage of publicity towards our industry now. And I think that's done some benefits and some drawbacks. And I think one of the drawbacks are People are looking to just profit by putting anything together and throwing it out there and saying, hey, here's a freight broker course. Because the reality is, is the bar and the barrier to entry to starting a a brokerage is pretty low. So you could Mm. technically get away with saying you've provided all the information necessary to succeed. And the reality is, is I think that's the big discrepancy with the scams that are out there. They just 
they don't have the information. They don't cover nearly enough to actually succeed in the industry. And that was one of the reasons why my partner and I came out and really put our own course together was we were running to that with people reaching out to us. Same thing that you would run into, you know, people coming out to us going, hey, like I purchased this course and I still have no idea what to do. That it's it's really frustrating and sad to hear because a lot of folks that are that are I, I would imagine that if I, I want to become a freight broker, that I probably don't have two thousand dollars to just throw down the drain. I mean, I I, I don't particularly want to become a freight broker, but I like learning about it, the aspects of it. Um, but I wouldn't want to waste two thousand dollars on something that isn't going to be long term beneficial. Now, for most freight brokers, are they starting out at a brokerage? Or are they starting out with taking a course like uh, like some of them that you will find, you know, on the internet or social media? How are they? I would say up and up until very recently, the traditional path was to go and work as a W two and to really just get a job and then to learn the industry by going and working in an office. I mean, we've all seen this transition through the pandemic of you know working from home, not needing to be going into the office on a day to day basis. So a lot more people are now coming into the industry through the course avenue just wanting to learn about it. And I would also say that I think there's probably a good number of our clients and people that have worked with us that, you know, they wanted to learn about it. And maybe they found out enough information, they decided it wasn't a good fit, um, because it isn't a good fit for everybody. But I would say that you're seeing a lot more prevalence with people buying courses, getting into it and trying to look for ways to get in the industry without having to go work in an office. They want to work from home. And I think it's a viable option. It's one of the few careers I think that are out there that without having a formal education, if you will, you could absolutely come in. And if you really put the time and the effort into it, you can make a very good living in this industry. And I don't know that that's the case in really a lot of the other industries that I've worked in throughout my life. Are there any warning signs that people should look out for when they're seeing some of these courses out? I mean, obviously, your your course that you offer on uh, Freight360.net that's the one that is is pretty comprehensive. But are there any warning signs that maybe if other folks are seeing something on social media that maybe that stick out to you that they should avoid or be on the lookout? Well, I would for? say, I would say the first thing you want to take a look at is like what is in the content. Like what are you looking to learn um, and compare it. I, I would say you know one of the two most credible courses I would say that are on the market are ours and the TIA. The TIA has been you know staple in the industry for decades. Their course, and we are, I actually, my partner and I both also teach their courses. So we do training with the TIA as well as with our own students. Um, and I would take a look at if you are looking for another course out there, ask yourself a few questions. Are you evaluating this because, like, you've talked to people, you think it's a good fit, and you're ready to take the next step? Then I would take a look at one of these two courses, look at the curriculum we offer, and compare it to the course that you've been considering. The other thing I would say is maybe you're at an earlier stage and you're not sure if this is a good fit, but you want to learn more. We put a ton of free content out on our website for this very reason. And back to what you were talking on earlier, I mean, a lot of that stuff we do intentionally for SEO, but also almost everything that is in our course is covered in another video. It's covered in a podcast. It's covered in a blog. So if you are at this stage where you're not sure if this is the right fit, but you're maybe about ready to take a jump and buy a course take a look, we put all this out there for this very reason. So you can get the information and you can make an informed decision before you purchase. We want people to be able to kind of be at that you know, decision where they know it's a good fit before they kind of jump into our course or even coach with us. So that's why we put a lot of that stuff out there free to the market and for everybody to help evaluate the I other options that. out there. 
Yeah, because I mean, from especially from an educational standpoint, you want people to trust that they're coming to you for the right reasons. And while they could, you know, theoretically go and search all of your content and, and you know, try to watch it in order, at least with a course, you'll be able to watch it in the order that you're meant to watch it. And then from there, it's a much easier of a learning experience versus just trying to find a bunch of different content and hope that you're watching it in the right order. So you're putting it out there for educational reasons, but then also you have it in a nice laid out format, which is perfect for courses. Um, I think you you hit the nail on the head with as far as like looking for the reputable educational opportunities, because I think that's what the, the, the biggest question is right now. Now, as far as your career, let, let's back it up a little. How did you get into the world of freight? And, and how did you find yourself, you know, at, at a point where you wanted to start teaching other people to join the industry? The interesting thing was I got recruited into it. I didn't even know that the industry existed when I got recruited into it. I, my background was in finance. I was a lender. Um, so I dealt with banking. And when I moved to South Florida, I was looking at banks to work for. And one of the larger brokerages recruited me, called me in for an industry, said, I, I think this would be a good fit for you. And honestly, after one or two conversations, one, I was astounded that I just wasn't aware of this massive industry, right? 800 some billion dollars. And I just had never heard of it. But two, just all of the aspects of it just really, you know, kind of struck a chord with me. It's fast paced. Um, there's always areas to improve. You've got uncapped ability to earn. You get to work with a lot of great people. And I really like the fact that in this industry, you get to work from everybody from the blue collar all the way through the bureaucracies and the aspects of like corporate finance that I've enjoyed. You really get to see all of it. And that was kind of how I got into it. Literally just got recruited into it, didn't know anything about it, and just have enjoyed it ever since. <laughs> now, As it kind of related. <laughs> no, go ahead. I, I was going to say, well, what's, what's the catalyst that, that made you say, okay, well, I want to start creating content around this. I want to start a podcast, which your podcast is great, by the way. I got it linked in the show notes of where you can find it. Um, but it's one of my go-tos, especially when it comes to the sales side of things that I, I just don't get exposed to enough. But with your podcast, why did you want to start a podcast? Well, to be honest, it was the podcast first started as Midnight Freight Broker with my partner, Nate Cross. He had started about three and a half years ago, I think, give or take. We got connected because he was a recruiter for an agency model, tried to recruit me when I was working with this large brokerage years ago. And it's one of these things where you don't know where you're going to meet people in life. And him and I always just kind of clicked. And as things transitioned into the pandemic, um, him and I were both looking for things where we could talk a little bit more about freight. And a lot of the things you were talking about, there's a lot of disinformation in the industry. There's not a lot of communication between parties, not a lot of communication between carriers and brokers in some ways and carriers and shippers and how any of this operates. And Nate and I just always clicked and we just felt, hey, you know, why don't we take what him and I talked about together and we're able to help the people around us and the offices we worked and whatnot and really just kind of put this out there for everybody. So it was something that we enjoyed. We always liked talking about. And, you know, the more we did it, the more the kind of listenership grew, the audience grew, people reached out for more, and it kind of grew organically into what it is now. Started out exactly as that, putting out good content and stuff that we just thought was going to be valuable to people in our industry that we worked amongst. Now, with how many people that you talk to from newbies to the experienced pros, are there any common questions that you're getting asked on a regular basis? Because you also offer you know, consulting and coaching calls as well. So I imagine that you're hearing a lot of questions throughout your conversation. Are you noticing any like similar trends of, of the common questions that people are asking? 
Absolutely. I mean, so the most common question we get from the brokers and brokerages we worked with that are already in business, right? I would say the biggest issue that we work on with our clients is like, well, how do you grow? Which is the first thing that everybody wants. But it's how do you get there, right? Because most brokerages have the same bottleneck, which is they've got a lot of business, they're running, they're profitable, but they don't have enough time. They don't have enough time to bring on the next person than to be able to delegate some things off their plate. And it's always just trying to manage the capacity of the actual broker, right? How many customers they're talking to? Are they getting enough trucks? So that's, I would say, the biggest growing pain that we work on with brokers that are probably in existence is how do they get to the next step? How do they scale up to the next level that they want to be? Whether it's, you know, 5 to 10 million or 25 to 30 million, wherever that is, it's the same process and we work through that with them. Would say How the can... biggest question. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. What's the biggest question? I was going to say the other large question that we get from newbies is just really what it's like. And I would say that the one thing that I really try to get across, and that Nate and I try to talk a lot about in our podcast, it's one of the things I feel like we say over and over again is that this is a simple industry, but it's not easy, right? It's mm. difficult, and you're going to deal with a lot of rejection, right? And if you want to go and start a career and build your own book, setting the right expectation up front and getting people to understand that like you're going to be told no or hung up on somewhere between 60 and 80 times a day. And it's going to be for a few months. But the payoff is large if you're willing to put yourself through that. That, I mean, God, I cannot imagine making 60 to 80 phone calls a day. So bless y'all that are out here who are doing that. But how can marketing departments or even like one person marketing teams, which is what most brokerages are are lucky mm-hmm. to have, how can marketing help the, these new brokers that are entering the space or even established brokers? I think marketing plays a very important role because we live, I mean, we all know the economy we live in. I mean, you guys, you could talk about it every week on your show, right? The digital aspect of it. When we have somebody reach out to us now, it's not even like it was five years ago. Like we expect there to be an online presence. We expect to be able to go and to verify the person that reaches out to us is who they say they are. But there's also this intangible, I think, of like, what is the feel you get when you go to this company's digital place of business, right? It's not the physical, it's not what the building looks like so much anymore. It's what is the presence? What are they doing out there in the market? What are they, what are their advantages? What are they doing? What are they like? And I think that's one of the things that really helps support the sales team, as well as just having additional resources when they're going and they're following up to be able to provide the things that they're being asked for. So things like blog articles, maybe even videos, uh, mm-hmm. content resources that that maybe marketers should be focusing their energy on, so that the freight team or the, the the sales team can have more chances to sell. You know, I guess maybe to a more targeted market. And then my next question is, well, how are they reaching that targeted market? Are are, are sales teams are is it just strictly cold calls or are there cold emails? What does that process look like for somebody who is just starting out as a freight broker? So it, I would say what we advise is it's predominantly phone calls that are moving the needle, right? So you need to have the human interaction to be able to... Because all sales is at the end of the day is a transference of emotion, right? We're on the phone. We're trying to build enough trust and credibility that the person we're speaking to believes that we're going to follow through with what we said we would, right? I mean, it's as simple as that. So it's very hard to move that emotional needle or to build trust through written text. But written text provides a very good 
it's it's another tool in your in your quiver or you know in your arsenal that is going to help you get to that phone call right and especially with a pandemic when everybody went to go work from home or people shifted back and forth from being in their office to working on a loading dock the phone lines that we all depended on to prospect prior to the fan- pandemic kind of went out the window where lots of companies are working off their cell phones or they're, they people don't have landlines at their house and they're moving back and forth from working from home to working in the office. So I've seen email become way more effective after, the, I mean, you know, in the past year or two since the pandemic started than it has ever been in the industry. And I think the primary function that we advise it's used for is don't try to close a customer on an email, but it is a great way to get in front of a customer and to get them onto the phone. Then you, you know, do what you can on the phone to try to move that needle, build trust. And then you mix in some texts and you mix in emails with it. So you have other things. I wouldn't say it's in any way strictly verbal on the phone, but mixing those things together helps you get a little more effective at getting people on the phone. Does that make sense? How are you? It does, definitely. Because I think that especially if people are working for, from their mobile phones, then you probably need to make it short and to the point. Um, don't write out these you know, thousand word emails where people just... It, I feel like the email inbox is already so overloaded that if you're prospecting, I feel it, it would probably be much better of, of a success rate if you're just quick and to the point. Um, but what about as far as like leads itself how are how are brokers finding the leads is it just simply you know a a book of cold leads that you know the sales team has looked at before and then just didn't want to touch or are they you know finding you know i guess email lists to buy online or or how are they finding the leads to begin with so on the first point i wanted to cover on what you said in regards to the emails the one thing i would absolutely get across is if you are sending emails to a prospect it should be no more than 3 to 5 statements sentences mm. no more than that maybe even 2 to 3 because to your point these paragraphs that are all about us that we want to tell them everything that we know and what we're great at right they're not no one's reading those like no one's going to sit there and spend 10 <laughs> minutes in the middle of their day reading an email about how great we are that we wanted to tell them about us right it needs to matter to them. So keep that in mind when you're, when you're composing these emails. Now, as it relates to leads, right? The one thing that I also love about this industry is just about everything, right? Everything that I can see in your shot and everything that's behind me got to where it was at some point on a truck, right? So whether you're walking through a grocery store, whether you're Christmas shopping, or whether you're literally just walking down the street, there are tons of things that you can prospect. And why I point that out is I think one of the more interesting ways to go about finding leads is to start with what interests you, right? And in transportation, there is no shortage of finding prospects. So let's say your hobby, I don't know, maybe you're a hockey fan, right? You can find every supplier of every piece of hockey equipment and then prospect them. Because guess what? That's something you're interested in talking about. You can talk to that person who, by the way, his livelihood is selling hockey equipment Think about how much easier it is to build rapport and trust with somebody when you both have that shared interest, right? So one of the things we absolutely advise is like, start with what interests you. If cooking's a hobby, if there's a sports team, if you are a country music fan, like you can do shipping for venues, you can do shipping for the products that are going to do that. Anything that interests you, there is a prospect that you can find. That's where I would start there. The other kind of categories are... And if you're working with like a larger brokerage or even a smaller mid-sized brokerage or even a small brokerage, you should probably have a pool of leads. And these are great for your new new reps, the people getting into the industry. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. We all do when we learn. So you want these people to be able to call through leads that are maybe, I don't want to say less valuable, but ones that 
it's not that big of a deal. If you make a mistake, you hang up and you move to the next one. Low risk, right? So the lead list, the things that you can buy, those email lists, if they're low cost and they get you some phone numbers, it helps get some of the people that maybe don't have any leads to call the reps. So there's value. I wouldn't say there's value in like, we're hoping to close a lot of business through those types. Now, the other category, I would say the final is the ones, the companies that are a fit for what our brokerage does. Every, va- every brokerage out there should have a value proposition, whether it's selling on communication, maybe it's that you guys do predominantly building materials out of the Southeast, maybe you do produce out of California, whatever that value is, whatever your niche is that you focus on, then I would look for the companies that you really want to go after that are in that niche. Those are the ones that I would say should make up about 10% of your prospecting, right? You've got 70%, which are your bulk. You've got about 20%, which are what you're interested in. And then you should have 10%, which are, I don't want to say like your whales, because it's not necessarily the size, but they are, they are the ideal customer for your brokerage. They're the companies that you really want to work with, right? The ones that you don't care if it takes a year or two to get onboarded. Once you do, you know you guys would be a great fit. Those are the ones where you want to do research. I think you need to be digging into LinkedIn, understanding who the points of contact are, and really understanding what that company's value proposition is so that you could have really good conversations with them. You want to extend those conversations out a little bit longer, and you want to kind of play the long game with those because they're more valuable and you're not just looking to move a load and move on. You really do want to establish that long-term relationship with them. I love all of those tips because it from the perspective of even you know finding the things that you're interested in. I used to work with a sales guy that would go to grocery stores and he would go to the frozen section and he would look at the manufacturers on the back of each package and he would just write them down and then he would go home and that's how he would prospect. Um, so I, I, I love that those all of those added bonuses and, and tips that you just dropped. Um, but bringing it to the podcast for a second, what about you and Nate? What, what do you you guys have covered a lot of topics in the past. Do you have any plans of what you're 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 going to cover in 2022? Um, is the podcast how is the podcast going to evolve, or is it going to evolve? If, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, <laughs> we put a lot more effort into YouTube over the past six months. We've probably been on there about a year and a half, so a lot more effort there. We're putting a lot. We're putting our entire podcast on YouTube. We're doing now at least one, if not two videos a week. So we're doing a lot more on that avenue to have more video content. Um, The other thing is, I mean, we're about to hit a pretty big milestone. Hopefully by the end of the year, we're going to hit 100,000 downloads. So that's something that we've been really excited about. And then kind of for next year, content and stuff that we're pushing and looking to move forward, we're doing a lot more webinars. We're doing a lot more live trainings. And one of the things that I'm really excited for is as we've been growing our YouTube channel and driving more and more traffic there is just doing more kind of like free trainings out there where we're going to be able to interact with our audience, answer live questions. We did one yesterday, actually, with DAT. We had, I think it was right around 2000 people sign up. But I mean, it was great. The thing with those is that you can't really kind of interact with the people in the interview and, you know, in the webinars, you can only field a couple questions at the end. So one of the things I'm excited for is to be able to actually utilize that feature of YouTube is to be able to like engage with the audience as we're kind of going through the training topics. That's awesome. Because especially from the interactive, you know, starting to really build that community aspect. Now, are there any, is there anything that you do in your content that you think that uh, other people, other brokers should be doing as well? Or should they really just be focused on, you know, hammering the phones and, and email outreach? 
I think you need to have a presence. I think you should be out there covering all the things that you've kind of gone, gone through, even just in the 15 minutes before you kind of brought me on. I think SEO is a big portion of that, right? Because people are looking to verify, even if you are reaching out, you need to have this other avenue. And I think that's really important that you're out there, that you have a presence. I think that having these blogs are really helping with organic search. Because again, regardless of how you contact or the prospect reaches out to you, it's valuable also moving forward that they know you're involved in the industry, that they know you're on top of these things, right? This also helps handle some objections that you might not ever have to deal with because you have this content out there, right? Like ethics, credibility in the industry, what to do when things go wrong. These articles on your website that your customers can read help answer the questions that are really in the back of their mind anyway, right? And I think that's absolutely valuable. And again, it's still, it's, I mean, it's like a full contact sport and the full contact in our sport is still the phone. So, I mean, if you want to get where you're going, absolutely, I would say a lot of your effort still needs to be there in conjunction with everything else we've kind of discussed. I love it. Use your website as the final nail in the coffin for your sales tools and then also hammer the phones. All right, Ben, where can folks follow more of your work, your podcast, all that good stuff? You can check us out where any of the podcasts are. So we're on Apple, Spotify, all of them. You can see myself or Nate. Check out Freight360 on LinkedIn, Freight360 on Facebook. We're also on um, Instagram. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Awesome. Appreciate your so much great perspective. You dropped a lot of gems in this. And I hope a lot of folks will, will take notes and then apply those in 2022. Looking forward to following more of your work. So, so thank you so much for coming on the show, Ben. You as well. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. Now, obviously, Ben has a wealth of information, especially from the freight broker side of things and on the sales side of things. But let's switch gears a little bit from the micro to the macro. Because I mean, you might you may or may not have noticed, but FreightWaves just had an entire event yesterday covering the domestic supply chain. Um, but over the last sort of few months, I mean, really over the last year, there have been another podcast that has been sort of exploring the global supply chain. And founder uh, FreightWaves founder and CEO, Craig Fuller has been on a couple of those different episodes, which was what originally drew my interest to these shows. But the, the podcast is from Bloomberg. It's called Odd Lots. And I have been binging all of their supply chain episodes because as someone who works in marketing, especially coming from the asset side, the 3PL side of things, you can kind of find yourself in a just sort of your own silo where you're not learning about really the rest of the the global sort of shipping trade, the global supply chain. So these other episodes have been really key in helping me to understand where the backlogs are happening and and where the different other silos that exist within the industry, where all of those are happening. And so I've gone through all of that. I've re-listened to all of these episodes from Odd Lots because they were so great. I listened to them the first time around. So the second time around, I said, well, you know, we're doing an educational themed episode. So why not go through all of these episodes, take some notes, and then share some of my favorite clips from each of those episodes. Now there's a total, I think of 10 episodes so far. So we're not going to have time to go into all 10. But I picked five of them that I think that you'll find interesting. And the first one that I want to highlight is that really the first episode that they covered the host, uh, Tracy Alloway and Joe Weisenthal, they're the host of the Odd Lots podcast. And so the first episode is why Tracy can't ship a teddy bear from Hong Kong to the US right now. 
This was recorded about a year ago. And one of the hosts, Tracy, she tried to ship, as the title suggests, she tried to ship a teddy bear from Hong Kong to the US in order to get that experience of what a typical, I guess, freight forwarder would be experiencing. Um, But what happened is that her shipment kept getting rolled, which I learned in making this segment is akin to getting bumped off of an air, uh, off of a flight. So I learned that these all of these new phrases, but these two experts that they interviewed for this episode shared how some of their customers are experiencing a lot of the same issues and how education and the proactive education has really been crucial to keeping their customers aware of what's going on in the industry. So let's go ahead and play that clip from Shipping Teddy Bears. Like my main question is when you're talking to your clients now, what sort of preparations are they making for the future and how creative are they being when it comes to actually transporting stuff? Because for instance, we talked about maybe trying to ship the teddy bear out of China. Um, Eventually, we decided against that because Bloomberg doesn't actually have an export license. And I didn't want to get my entire company in trouble for the purposes of, you know, a stunt journalism article. But is that the kind of stuff you're seeing now? Like, are people just going to lengths or to routes that they wouldn't normally do? Yeah, we're we're seeing, uh, we're seeing all, all of the above, right? Some clients that 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 are are adjusting well and are, are understand what's going on and working pra- on a practical ways to to deal with it to to set expectations properly with their with their customers and then there's others right that are like the deer in the headlights right uh, that that uh, what do you mean why can't this happen uh, uh, this has always been this uh, this has always worked why not now and, and so the education process of what's going on, where I'm spending a lot of time sending articles out to clients to show them what's what's happening in the market and explaining what others are, uh, what others are seeing and how it's not just a unique situation to uh, not, not a unique uh, issue with their particular situation. See, I think that that clip is key because it shows the power of educating your audience. And if you have these resources, being proactive about sharing them with your customers and prospective audience, whether through an email or using your website, social media, all of those good things. Now, the next clip that I want to play is titled, How the World's Companies Wound Up in a Deepening Supply Chain Nightmare. Now, the person who is being interviewed is Ryan Peterson, who you might remember a few episodes back. He went viral on Twitter for simply just going out to the and reporting on what problems he's seeing. He's a CEO of Flexport, so he was really proactive in getting out there and getting that firsthand information. Uh, but this next clip, he demonstrates his historical knowledge on maritime shipping. Let's go ahead and play that clip. I haven't even gotten into all the Viking English that still predominates in global trade. There's a lot of... There's a, oh, tell us some, tell us some. The, the word for chucking is called drayage, which is, I guess, to, is that an old word for dragging something? Like when you had horses dragging... Uh-huh. Uh, you have a bill of lading. Yeah. Uh, well, that lading is an old English word for loading. Um, and the bill of, of lading, course. this is to show you how ancient this industry is like the bill of lading is a, is a piece of paper that serves as title to the merchandise by default in global trade in this 2021 today, by default, that piece of paper needs to be flown across the ocean to be given to the new owner. So your containers going along slowly like this your piece of paper gets flown around and then you need to present that at the port to be able to pick up your container. It's not, it's crazy. 
that is just a sample size of all of the knowledge that that Ryan drops on that particular episode. And I've linked in the show notes. If you're listening on, on podcast version, you should be able to click that episode in another episode because Ryan was so good that he was featured on another episode just recently of the Odd Lots podcast. So I've got both of those linked in the show notes as well as all of the other ones that I'm mentioning during this segment. Uh, but the next one that I want to play is coming from Craig Fuller. And he talks about this episode as the trucking episode and why the industry is such a mess. It was recorded over the summer. And Craig goes into detailing how the nuances of buying and selling trucks right now as a depreciating asset versus the rest of the industry, where if you purchase an asset, it has a it has a long term value, where it's just the opposite in trucking. So let's go ahead and play that next clip. <laughs> yeah, so there's a used market. Uh, now you yeah. can't today get a new truck. So the issue is that this is an asset. So the other thing creates real economic issues for trucking companies, typically that own assets. If you think about owning assets, if you own a building or a warehouse, you're gonna that asset over time should appreciate. And over time, uh, you're going to hold on to that for 30 years. Even in the shipping industry, as you guys have covered, those ships have life cycles of 20 to 30 years. And so if I go buy a ship, I'm able to uh, operate that ship for 30 years. In trucking, I'm only going to be able to operate that truck for three years. Uh, And so, so really, as I run that truck and put as many miles as I can, there is a secondary market for that. Uh, and so typically what happens is the larger fleets or the owner operators that run nationwide will end up running the truck for three years. And after the three-year cycle, they will end up selling it into a secondary market, which will end up going to more localized operations, port operators, people that don't have as strenuous sort of over-the-road long-haul demands. And so uh, because of that, uh, the trucking companies have to go out and buy new trucks every three, you know, they're constantly buying new equipment. So you have this really big issue uh, where the, you know, trucks don't hold their value. So based on what cycle we're in, in terms of boom or bust depends on how well they do. And so that's a pretty significant issue. But uh, right now, uh, used trucks have gone up about 40% in the last three months. So it's good if you own equipment and you can sell that equipment. If you have too many trucks and not enough drivers, you're, you're doing quite well because your balance sheets have really, really improved. And so we're actually seeing a lot of that. But ordering a new truck, you're about nine months out uh, to get it, if you ordered a truck today, it would take you approximately nine months to get it. And that is assuming that they will even take your order. Right now, a lot of the OEMs are not actually accepting new truck orders. Wow. So from the perspective of, we've talked about it from the shipping side of things with or the customer really side of things. We've talked about it from the trucking side of things. now, And we've also talked a little bit briefly about from the port side of things. Now, the final clip that I want to play is what the pandemic did to the U.S. rail system. And, and I think this the rail system often gets overlooked compared to other modes of transportation. I know it's one of my more weaker points when it comes to the educational awareness within the industry. Uh, but the first six months of intermodal traffic has moved more goods this year than any other previous year. And I think that that can be surprising because I, I know of freight cargo, but I didn't know that there were different speed levels comparing to regular freight cargo and depending on the uh, commodity that you're shipping via rail. So there's a lot of nuances to it when I didn't really think there were that many nuances to it. So let's play the final clip on the rail efficiency. Let's talk about, so right now we're just talking about this this intermodal traffic, this container traffic. And I think we need to take a step back and look at rail's role in the 
kind mm-hmm. of the overarching economy. And it's important to remember that that rail is is moving the goods economy, the tangible economy. So whether it's industrial products, whether it's agriculture products of all kinds, whether it's chemicals, whether it's automotive uh, automobiles, rail moves about seventy five percent of finished automobiles. Uh, not to mention uh, a very high percentage of a lot of the components that go into automotives during the during the manufacturing process. Of course, going back to the challenges we're seeing in the semiconductor area, they're impacting that. And then intermodal covers at this point, probably about half of rail traffic. Um, that has tra- changed over the years. Uh, coal used to amount for approximately 25% of all rail traffic. I would say, you know, societal shifts, market shifts have dramatically reduced that. But what we've what we've grown in place of that is this explosive growth in, in consumer goods and, and container traffic. So Railroads are are managing all of those different types of uh, of products that they're moving through their pipelines at any given time, and those different types of products need to be moved at different levels of pace based on customer demand. So there are certain commodities that that can move at a more measured pace, but your your premium products, your your intermodal traffic, your your UPS traffic, UPS is the largest customer for the rail industry writ large. Um, that stuff needs to move very quickly. And so railroads have designed their networks to, to allow for the staggering of uh, different, different speed of traffic that's required to, to meet customers' needs. And so you hit on you know, the, the relatively limited number of major gateways that, that rail traffic needs to flow to. And I would say that's what we're primarily talking about, that traffic that, again, comes from the West Coast and needs to uh, disperse in the middle of the country. And so you mentioned Chicago. We talked about Kansas City, Memphis, New Orleans, St. Louis. Those are the, the, the main ones that come to mind. I can tell you that, that our railroads have built out over the years very efficient systems that allow for a very speedy movement of goods from the West Coast into these gateways, and they're designed as such because those gateways are the ones that have the, the terminal capacity to, to, to sort, shift, and rebuild trains as needed to hand off to the Eastern partners. Or, you know, we're, we're not even talking about the East Coast, but we have a similar situation, uh, inverse situation coming from the East Coast going, going West or into the heartland as well. But I can tell you those, these networks have been designed in a very methodical and very intentional way to allow for a very efficient movement of interline traffic into the middle of the country where it can then get dispersed as needed. Now, I, I thought that that clip was particularly interesting because the whole interview itself, they, they, they talk about how freight rail is the best in the world because it's privately owned and funded. So I thought that that was another interesting note coming from that episode. But it's a lot of really good insight. Like I said, I have linked to all of these different shows. It's sort of like a, a mini masterclass or like a Cliff Notes version is probably the, the, the better way to put it for all of the different modes of transportation, uh, working with global, uh, global supply chain and just the overall impact of how each industry kind of works in a silo and then how they work together or don't work together with other parts of the transportation process. So it's a lot of really good insight that I hope that you will take advantage of over this holiday break. Like I said, I've got them linked in the episode show notes, um, but it's really a historical and educational dive into both of those things. Now, as we close out the show, I just wanted to take a quick moment and wish all of you a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. We will see y'all right back here on FreightWaves TV in 2022 every Thursday, 2 p.m. Thank you guys so much for all of the attention and love that you've given this show. 
Um, we've got more of that to come in 2022. So once again, thank you. My name is Blythe Brumley with digitaldispatch.io and you can follow all of my work via that website. Thanks again and Merry Christmas.